0: Yep, tonight for a little bit we'll take your questions. I don't get to do this very often, but I've done this from time to time, and I do this at The Rock quite often on some of our Tuesday evenings. We meet every Tuesday. And so uh, I know sometimes maybe you're reading in your Bible, you have questions, or you're going through something in your life, you have a question, or you're dealing with something, you have a question, and but you never get a chance to ask. So I thought, well, we'd try to do that this evening. Can you shut that back door for me right there? Just pull it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so I guess we can start now. Who's got a question that they want to start us all off with? Right down there, little lady in the front row. Sure. She's bothered by God, and her question is <laughs> 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 We all are at times in our lives. <clears throat> How many have been reading your one your Bible? <clears throat> oh, look at that. Hold your hand really high. Cool. How many of you are writing in your journal? Okay, 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 very good. How many have already filled a journal once? And, all right. Yeah, how many are almost filled? Mine's almost full. All right. Very good. We have a new millennial leather-bound edition coming out for all of you. It'll cost you $59.95, complete with a, complete with a prayer cloth, okay? And, and Brent sprayed over it, and it'll heal what ails you, all right? So um, So her question is in Ezekiel, why is God referring to Ezekiel as the son of man? Um, other than because he was born of woman and he's the son of man, I have no idea. <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, that's a good question. Um, yes, because he was the son of man, son of God, son of man. I, I just think, uh, you know, she thought maybe God was being impersonal with Ezekiel, but he sure's having an awful lot of communication with him, isn't he? So you know, on the one hand, he's personal, but on the other hand, um, I don't know why he doesn't refer to him as, as Ezekiel. Maybe he's trying to make a point. Ezekiel's a pretty tough book, isn't it? Rough stuff, you know. God, I'll tell you, after a while, he just <clears throat> well, you get the point. Okay. Yes, Kathy. Melchizedek. Yes, in Hebrews. Well, he was. He was. He was this king priest that Abraham met and before all the law was given, and he's just symbolic of that his, his, he never had no beginning, he never had an end, he wasn't officially part of the Jewish nation, and <clears throat> so other than its symbolism, I don't think it has any other meaning. <clears throat> Christ is our eternal high priest. <clears throat> Melchizedek was a human being, yes. He was the king of Salem, if I'm not mistaken, specifically, But he was dead for a long, long time. And yes, so Christ was that type of priest. If I'm not mistaken, Jesus came from the tribe of David, correct? And not from the tribe of Levi. And in the Jewish law, only the Levites were allowed to be priests. Melchizedek, what was unusual about him, was he did not come from the normal Jewish lineage, and yet Abraham paid homage to him by offering a tithe to him. Do you remember that? That's that's what it says in Hebrews, if you remember. And so, Christ also is out of the ordinary. He was from the, well, actually the tribe of Judah, which is David was from the tribe of Judah. So, it's nothing super complicated. It's a good question. Uh, Other questions? Oh, I see a hand right there. Karis. So, you wonder, you know, I had this question asked me this morning. So, her question is, there's these verses that say, you know, kind of give the impression to bug God, bug God, bug God. Like the Gospels, for example, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on asking. <clears throat> and then there's a few where it says, just kind of God already knows what you need, and so, well, gee, how? what are you supposed to do? <clears throat> Anybody else ever have that question? Like, how many times are you supposed to ask God for something? Is that kind of the question? <clears throat> My advice is pray earnestly. If I was going to err, I'd err on the side of bugging God. <laughs> that persistence pays off, and I think... Personally, I think that is the message that Jesus gave. And since He was God, and that's how He prayed, <clears throat> and that's even what He commanded His disciples. You know, He's the one who gave the the, uh, the story, you know, of the unrighteous judge and the widow. Do you remember that story? And and it says, that it prefaces by saying, Jesus gave them the story so that they would pray and not give up, and not lose heart. <clears throat> then if you go to the book of James, it tells us that the uh, fervent prayer of an upright man, uh, uh, the earnest prayer of an upright man has great power. And earnest means you really mean it and you're there. And, and well, then it uses the example of um, Elijah. You know, when he prayed and he prayed that it would rain. And he sent his little guy out, his little helper, to see if there was a cloud and there was no cloud. So he came up and says, no clouds. And Elijah prayed again. He kept praying until there were clouds. And then, and then he saw a small cloud and he and prayed again and it, and it rained. So, personally, I believe the best policy is a policy that continues to seek God for that which you're seeking until he does one of two things. He either answers or he makes it very clear to you that he has a different plan. And he may do that through counsel. He may do that through counsel and circumstances. He may do that through just giving you peace in your heart. For, for example, now maybe this is my own lack of faith. I'll share this, but you know it really could be my own lack of faith. <clears throat> I do not pray for my father's repentance. Some of you know, you've know, heard the story of my father. <clears throat> my father's an extraordinarily hard man. And I just, I fully expect the next time I see him will be at his funeral. If I even find out he's dead. So, I don't pray. I don't spend time over it. He's in God's hands. It's something I'm very, personally, I'm very comfortable with. I know that uh, he's completely rebelled against God. He despises God. He despises the Bible. And it's like, you know, i got a lot of other things to pray about. Now, you know, you may think that's cold hearted and callous and all that, and that's okay, you can rebuke me later if you want. And by the way, if any of you ever want to write me email, it's zealforgod at AOL.com. If you have, you have instant access to criticize a message or give a suggestion or whatever, it's Z-E-A-L, push the number four, G G-O-D at AOL.com. So, <clears throat> you know, there are some things that I just have real peace in my heart. I guess I feel it from the Holy Spirit to just relax on it. It really is in God's hands. And there's other things that I feel like, uh, of course, everything's in God's hands. But I guess there's other things that I just feel um, um, I have a good chance of seeing those things come true, and I'm going to ask him and ask him until they do. I don't know. That's just me. I would ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. But you know, like with Kathy's parents, for example, I didn't pray about that every day. I don't even know if my wife did. We made it a matter of prayer, and then we just lived our life in hopeful faith that God would honor our lives. Does that make sense? And then there are, other, there are other times there are pressing issues or issues that bear down on me a lot and I just pray about them every day, sometimes many times throughout the day. I commit it to the Lord. Maybe you have things you worry about and they keep coming back. Commit them to the Lord. Give those burdens. Just keep unburdening. Keep unburdening. <clears throat> then there are things like that we would grow numerically that lots more people would come and as pastors, we pray for that all the time. We pray that people would get saved all the time. You know... Um, I pray for my children every day. I pray for their <clears throat> in in, in uh, John seventeen, you remember that Jesus was praying for his own disciples and, and I take a lot of cues from some of the things Jesus prayed, but he said, Father, I, I pray that you would I pray that you wouldn't take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. And I figure, well, gee whiz, if Jesus is gonna pray that I'm gonna pray it. He must know something I don't know, you know. So Lord, yeah, protect them protect my kids and and uh, give them hearts for you and soften their heart and be working in their life. And and as I pray for them, it also sensitizes me as a parent to maybe needs in my own life that if I were to change, I might be more helpful to my children. So, uh, there's, there's great benefits to prayer. One of them being, besides the answers, is that they really soften your heart and open your eyes often to things you would not have ordinarily seen before. So, I believe, I believe that prayer is essential and, Lots of it and often. So, for any of you that are in sales, I guess the best policy is persist until you get a yes. Well, there's only one way you can do that. Okay, just so you all know that. He's asking about the unforgivable sin that Jesus talked about in the Gospels. Anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is unpardonable. Okay. I'm going to give you what myself and the other pastors, we've talked about this. What I believe is the only unforgivable sin in the Bible. And and, and if you understand the rest of the New Testament, there can only be one. And that is rejecting Jesus Christ. God cannot forgive that. If you reject the Savior of the world as your Savior, then you can't get saved. Now. Now, but understand. At any moment in your life, you could turn from that and embrace Christ. But, But God will not pardon the unpardonable, and that unpardonable is if you turn your back on the Lamb of God over and over throughout your life, There, there is simply no escape. You will pay in hell for all your sins for all eternity. But but I believe, the Bible teaches clearly, as do the other pastors, that when you've come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and, and probably most of you in this room, if not all of you, at some point in your life, you, you recognize, I've sinned, I need Christ. Christ died for me. <clears throat> I believe He loves me. I want eternal life. I don't want to go to hell. Whatever your motivation was, you said yes to the Lord. And when you did, zoom, he came in, and a couple things happened. He you passed from death to life. The Bible says, He who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And has not come into judgment of has passed from death to life. So <clears throat> the moment that you say yes, in faith, is the moment that the Holy Spirit, actually it's not Jesus, but it is, but you know, they're the one one in three, but three in one, but each their own. So the Holy Spirit is the actual part of the Godhead that comes and lives in you. And He comes immediately. And the moment He's in, you're born again, you're a baby, you're alive, you're a new creation, and He lives in you and He promised in Hebrews to never leave you or forsake you. And you are made completely righteous and completely justified in the sight of God. From that moment forward, there is nothing between you and God. All the record of all your wrongdoings is gone, eradicated, wiped away. So, yes. First of all, he's asking the question, you know, about being accountable for our lives before God. Again, I'm going to give you what I believe the Scripture teaches. First of all, I look at what the Scripture clearly says, not what it does not clearly say. The Scripture clearly says in First John, in another passages of the Bible, number one, that we will never incur the wrath of God. Number two, <clears throat> that a Christian will not. Number two, that a Christian will never be punished for wrongdoing. Bible says that in First John, it says that uh, he who fears has not been perfected in love, because fear involves punishment. We're not going to be punished. Okay, Christ was punished for our sin. Okay, third, we know that Hebrews says our sins and lawless deeds he remembers no more. Correct? That's all sin and lawless deed. All of it. Not just your B.C. sins, before Christ's sins, but your A.C. sins, after Christ's sins, are all kept a record of. Fourth or fifth, whichever number I'm on, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no record of wrongs. Correct? The Bible says in 1 John that God is love. So, when I combine all those, there's frankly only one conclusion that I can come to myself. I believe that when we go to heaven, and we face what's known as the judgment seat of Christ, or the beam of judgment seat, it will be an award ceremony for all that you've done for Christ. And some of you will get 22,000 gold medals, and some of you will get one. But personally, from what I can understand from the New Testament, and I'm you know I'm more than willing to be reproved about this or learn more, but I have gone over and over and over trying to put all the pieces in a reasonable and logical fashion together that it's just incongruent to say that I am forgiven for all wrongdoing, but I'm going to be judged for wrong. I'm sorry, that doesn't add up. Does that you following me? You're following the logic there? So I believe that. My motivation to serve the Lord, by the way, is I'm not afraid. I don't serve the Lord because I'm afraid. I serve Him because I love Him. And I want to have trophies, personally, to lay at His feet. I believe the more I win, the more gold, and again, the Bible doesn't say, you know, there's gold medals, and our works will be tried. The Bible says they'll be tried. But it depends on what you mean by tried. See, we're so used to embarrassing situations, and I don't think the Lord's going to be into embarrassing you. I think what the Lord's going to do is give you that which you have honored Him with. And if you've honored Him a little, He'll give you a little honor. But but I don't personally think He's you're going to stand there and He's going to dress you down in front of five billion souls or a hundred billion, however many in heaven. Because the Bible, in my opinion, makes it very clear that you're just completely forgiven and spotless. And, and, and the Bible says in Jude, not him who is able to give you great joy and bring you into His presence blameless with great joy. You're blameless. So so I believe personally what the Lord's going to do is it's going to be a massive celebration of the reward ceremony and you are going to finally get the applause from God and all the other myriads in heaven that you live for Christ. For what you did right. That's my feeling. You know, I received a letter one time. It was about six months ago. and It was from a very young Christian and... <clears throat> It really touched me, the logic of their letter. Um, and, the, and the person wrote to me, they said, Mark, I just want you to know, <coughs> I'm looking forward to being there in heaven <coughs> <coughs> when the Lord calls your name and and honors you for what you did and it's my chance to applaud for you. You know, I don't like get a big head over that. I was just struck by that thought. I think every one of you are going to have your time on the podium before the Lord and you're going to have honor that you've only been used to seeing Michael Jordan get. Remember this, okay? Here's another, if I can just keep going down this path. The Bible says in the Gospels that even if you give a cup of cold water in the Lord's name, you'd be rewarded for it. Now, how many of you here think that giving a cup of cold water is worth rewarding anybody for? I don't. I'm sorry, in my human understanding, I think that's pretty pathetic. You know, maybe if you really, I don't know, gave, you know, half your life's earnings to God or, you know, you won 25,000 people to Christ or, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Something really big. We tend to think big. God does not. God thinks in very small things and I promise you, there's a lot of little cups of cold water that have been given away in this room by the people in this room and some of you, what you'll do is you maybe look at me, or you might look at Brent or Andy or Jeff, you think, well, those guys, you know, that, that they share the Word and they're pastors, they're really going to get rewards. And I just want to tell you something. God is going to reward the care you gave to your child in His name. He's going to reward the meal you prepared for loved ones in His name. He's going to reward that kind act to someone at work who treated you miserably, but you responded in Christ-like love. He's going to reward Every single little tiny thing. So just between me and you, everyone in this room is going to have something coming to you. I don't have any doubts of that in my mind. And now that's after much ponderance of the Scripture. And and I've looked at it over and over. I've read the passages hundreds of times over and over. And as I try to put all the pieces of the New Testament together, that's the conclusion that I've arrived at. And And I'm highly motivated <clears throat> to live my life. Every day now when Paul says in Corinthians that I pray that that I run in such a way to win so that after I have preached to others I myself may not be be disqualified for the prize. Paul, if again, thinking about the character of God, what God is like, that he's faithful, that he keeps his word, even when we do not. I think what Paul was speaking of is the physical race right here. That I'm running the race, I was running hard. My father, I believe, fits in this category. My father is far more charismatic than I am. Far more articulate, far more persuasive. And when I was a young child, I remember hearing my father preach. I remember the people, my dad led to the Lord. My dad would give you the shirt off his back. He won, uh, we used to go to the Skid Row Missions of L.A. And my father would win winos to Christ and see their lives turn around. My father preached to others and then was totally disqualified for the prize. And what I I believe that his life doesn't matter at all for anything anymore. And he took himself completely out of the race. And I believe that all those years are wasted, lean, pathetic, miserable years. But I believe that for whatever time he lived his life for God because it's not dependent on my father it's dependent on the character of God that God will reward him for that which he did. That's what I believe the scripture teaches. Make, you understand that? We can talk some more if you ever want to give me a call. Yeah, some other questions. Yes, right here. Well, that's actually one of my favorite passages. Go ahead and read the rest of it. Well, maybe I should since they can hear me. Hebrews what? 6 is it? 6.4. Okay. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Okay. Let me... Uh, Let me look at this because I was just reading this the other day. I want to make sure I have the right passage that I want to show you. Okay. This is the passage I want to. Let's start with verse uh, 4. For it is impossible to restore to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people to repentance again because they have nailed the Son of God to the cross again by rejecting Him, holding Him up to public shame. Now, when you read that, and we're going to go on here in a moment, when you read just that, here's what it would seem to be saying. It would seem to say that if I've come to know the Lord, I have the Holy Spirit, and I've tasted of God, and this is all wonderful, and I've seen the power, and I believe the Lord's coming back for me, but I decide to turn away from the Lord and turn my back on God. There's no hope. I've lost my salvation. I'm going to hell, and there's nothing that can be done about it. That's what it seems to say, doesn't it? Okay, That's not what it says, and I'll show you why in just a moment. First of all, Hebrews is called Hebrews because it was written to Jews. Okay? Now, without getting too complicated on you, remember that the Jewish nation, all throughout their history, and you're reading about it right now in Ezekiel, and it's hard and heavy, isn't it? They experienced, even though multitudes of Jews were unsaved. I don't know, I'm going to try to help you understand this. They experienced and tasted of God's goodness. For example, they had manna fall in the wilderness. They saw the Red Sea open. That doesn't mean they all went to heaven. In fact, let's be frank, they tasted of God more than I have. I haven't seen the Red Sea open. I haven't seen all the plagues come to Egypt. That's power. But they turned their back on God. But the point was, they never knew God. Not in a personal way. They tasted of Him in a general sense. But, Let's go on because I want you to look at verse 9. Dear friends, even though we are talking like this, we really don't believe that it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. That's the key verse. The, The NIV Bible says things that accompany salvation. What he's saying is, I'm confident this isn't true of you because you're actually saved. That's the other way you'd read the verse. That because think it's not this is not I'm not speaking of you because you got better things coming because you've really genuinely gotten saved and any person who's really genuinely gotten saved in time there will be fruit there always in time will be fruit now if you know someone who says to you I'm a Christian I believe Jesus died for me and accepted him when I was twelve and they're thirty five years old. And they are continuing to live a life of sin. They do not want to follow Christ. They do not want to submit to the commands of the Scripture. And they do not want to be around other believers. Those are the three tests according to the book of 1 John. 1 John says they aren't saved. That's part of why the book of 1 John was written. So that you could tell who was saved and who wasn't. Because you need to know so you know which message to tell them. To a Christian you say, hey, turn from that. Let's go the other way. But to the non-Christian, you say, you need Christ, you need to repent. And there's a lot of people in our world r- realize that America is unlike any country in the world. There's an unbelievable amount of Christi- Christianization that is going on in our culture. Whether it's Protestantism, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Methodism, or any other kind of ism. There's all kinds of knowledge of Jesus, but there's a multitude of people who fill churches every week that are unregenerated, unholy spirit-filled. They do not know the Lord even though they take on the symbolism of Christianity. They take on the label. They do not know the Lord. Do you understand that? So, the very fact that you're sorry about them proves you're saved. The very fact that you said, Mark, I did some things I'm sorry for, I didn't, I, I, I wished I hadn't, proves the fact that your conscience is alive, and that the Holy Spirit is in you. You're not going to lose the Holy Spirit. Yes, just a second, right over there. Yes. Yes, I was talking about my father, right? Yes. Well, two passages, okay. She has a similar situation. My father, her father at one time, was walking with the Lord, and now isn't, and has gone the opposite way. Um, I personally don't have trouble with that as far as am I concerned they're saved. Here's why. Number one, the fruit in my father could not have been faked. Could not have been faked. It, it was... He was a completely different man. My father grew up in a, a very uh, broken Irish Catholic family. His father died when he was six and he lived on the streets and he was very mean and very rough. And when Christ turned his life around at 21, 22, he became a completely. My father was in Korea, came back from Korea, came to know Christ and he was a completely different man. He was a very loving, tender father. Every night my father would come home when I... Uh, I was four, five, six, seven. He would come home and listen to M.R. Hahn, Back to the Bible broadcast, Theodore. Up. He would sit in his study for an hour every night, and he was passionate about the Lord. What happened to my father? In the Book of Hebrews, indicates this. It says, "Don't let a root be careful that a root of bitterness does not spring up in you and defile many." Remember that passage? That's what happened to my father. My father got bitter just a little bit about some things that happened, some things that were said, and he didn't tear it out, and it grew and it grew. Okay? Now, remember this. Saul is in heaven. Saul is in heaven. And Saul died not very God-honoring. Samson is in heaven. And Samson died not very God-honoring. And God mentioned Samson in Hebrews chapter 11. And we all know Samson had a very bad reputation. You realize that? So now we're talking the New Covenant. That was the Old Testament. You're talking the New Covenant... Trust me, if someone embraced Jesus Christ, there will be fruit. There will always be fruit. But they may walk away from that life, and they have the choice. Two other ways to know. In the book of 1 John, the the Bible tells us there are sins that lead to death. Let me put it another way. God will kill you and take you home. So you don't continue to be an embarrassment to the kingdom of God. Secondly, in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, Paul indicated to the Corinthians that there are people getting sick among you and dying. He used the term falling asleep, which in the Bible means dying, because you're getting drunk it's your breaking of bread. One of the most sacred times of the body of Christ, you come together, you remember what the Lord did for you, you're fighting, you're jealous, you're, you're not letting other people eat at the love table, and you're getting drunk. And because of it, he said, because of what was going on, in the, in the Corinthian church, you have to remember that Corinth was influenced by Rome. It was it was in fact more hedonistic than the United States is today. If you read Roman history, you'll be just sickened to your stomach by the things, the sexual devancy of many of the Roman rulers in the Senate and the Caesars. And so it became pervasive, and Corinth was very pervasive, very immoral. And so Paul writes to them and he says, Some of your own people are dying. I had a I had a guy, this is a a good friend who I trust his word, knew another guy, and two brothers in the church, who got in a fist fight in a home at a breaking of bread meeting. One week later the guy started was dead. And and I'm not really trying to scare you, I'm really not you ask me. I'm just trying to help you understand that you're saved, you're saved, but you're God's. And uh and and this is why I guess I've said to Karis a minute ago. I guess the next thing I expect here, my father is he's dead. Because the things my father has since done are um, really despicable. And I've and I've done everything that I feel I can do to try to lovingly talk to my father, to exemplify to him that God will be faithful, to even challenge his um, his his life, and. Uh, He's rejected it all, so he's in God's hands. So that's why I believe what I just told you. Just a moment, there was a hand over here up uh, with her. When, who, no, just a second. Who? Who had? Was it, it was a young lady. Another young lady. Who? Tom, you had your hand up. Yeah. In First John, it says you try to you'll try to live like Jesus lived. It says if anyone habitually walks in the darkness, they do not know the light. They lie against the truth. Anyone who, who accepts Jesus must live as Jesus lived. And so they so they want to live like Jesus lived. They want to obey His commands. And the third is, they really want to be around other Christians. And that's, that's probably the biggest indicator. Often you have people will say to you, well, you know, I know God, but I don't need church. Oh, 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 wait a minute. We better evaluate that. Now, what they may be saying is, my experience with church really turned me off and I've never been to a loving church, so I just decided to be me and God. That I can understand. But if you evaluate it a little farther, and you find out they really can't stand being around true holy ones, which that's what you are if you're a Christian, it's a very strong indication, not definitive, but strong, according to 1 John, that they don't know the Lord. Remember the Bible says that the reason the world hates us does not accept us because they did not accept me. For if they love me, they'll love you. So, anyway. Yep. Um, Okay. No, because, see, what I'm saying is, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply the rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. But you can't do that because He's already in you, and boom, He's not leaving. You made that decision already. That's my point. You made that decision. There's really technically, in the book of Revelation... We have a picture in Revelation 20:21 20 of the great white throne judgment, when every person whose name is not in the book of life, and yours is. If you come to Christ, your name's in the book of life, and you're not even at the great white throne judgment as far as being judged. The Bible does seem to indicate that we, along with the angels, will be casting people into hell, but you don't know that for sure. So we may be at the great white throne carrying out the justice of God, but we don't know that for sure. But what we know for sure is that you will not be in the long line waiting for your moment before God when He says, you're not in the book of life, you rejected me, to the lake of fire you go. You will not be in that line. Okay? You follow me? So, I don't know why I brought that up. This age thing is really getting to me. But it, but it, but it was a, an important point there. And that is that, uh, I don't know what it was. Yes? Yes? That's a perplexing phrase. Um, that gets into Calvinism and Arminianism. And some of you grew up in catechism class, you might know what that is. Uh, Ultra-Calvinists believe that God chooses those who will be saved and it's no choice of yours whatsoever. Ultra-Arminians believe that it's completely the free will of God, uh, the free will of man, and that all have unequal equal opportunity to come to Christ. And those who are trying to carry out the Scripture... Try to understand that both are involved. And how exactly? I don't know. I believe that the Bible teaches clearly, in like Ephesians, that God chose us. It says that. I mean, it, it says that. He chose you. At the same time, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think everybody had a chance to get saved and I could preach to them and they might have a chance to come to Christ. Nowhere in the Bible... Does it specifically say God chose people to go to hell, and to hell they will go, and there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it? And that's to me the real issue. The Bible says in Peter that He does not God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we know that His will or His desire is that every person would come to repentance. So, it could mean, many are called, that the call goes out to the whole world, but few actually choose it. And it could mean, since also, God has a part of it, that many are called, He puts out the call, and then those who respond, who He foreknew, which the Bible also says, way before we were ever born, but He went ahead and let you be born anyway, even though you're going to end up going to hell, because you made your choice, and He knew it way before. I don't know how it all works, but anyway, then He chose you. So it, it could possibly mean either one. I don't worry about it personally because I I I believe that God gives a person an opportunity to come to Christ. I believe the Bible makes it clear that Christ died for the sins of all the world, but those sins that he died for mean nothing if you don't personally accept the payment for yours. You follow me? What what's mind blowing to me is that Jesus paid for all this took all the hell, even for all the people who will go to hell. That's what's really amazing. Is he was crushed for even their sin. He paid for even their debt. So that's my understanding of the scripture. Yes. No. No he's not. I would consider him dormant at this point. My point was. What I said earlier. Was that a person who's genuinely saved. At some point in their life. There will always be fruit. That does not mean in my view. That there will always be fruit for all their life. Do you follow me? the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy... See, the key issue, the key issue to remember is that salvation is a gift of God, not of works, but by faith. It's God's grace, so no one can boast. So it's God who saves you, and it's God who keeps you saved. Now, logically, if we really believe, of course, James tells us, faith without works is dead. So if I really believe something, for example, if I tell my wife alright, when I, when I was going to marry her, I love you. I love you. How does my wife know that that's true? Or my fiancé? One, because I'm willing to make a commitment. Two, because I put my money where my mouth is. Three, I put my life where my, where my mouth is. And I lay my life down for her welfare, whether I feel like it or not. This is where so many couples get so confused about love. Because when we first met, it was, to, in our mind, more emotion than anything. We were in love with being in love. It was like that euphoric feeling that you just, oh, God, I could live like this forever. You know, just, you'd go to bed at night. They were in your mind. You felt energized. You felt uplifted. You just wanted to be in their presence. Then you got married. <laughs> and, and it kind of goes downhill emotionally from there. Then, then, you, then you separate the men from the boys and the women from the girls. Because then you realize that was emotion. Love is the act of the will to choose to die to self for the best interest of that person every day for the rest of your life. And there are times love may feel really good, but you remember the song, Love hurts... Love. That's what love that Love hurts. Love. Love costs. Real love costs. But there can be real. See, my level of emotion today in my marriage is a different type of emotion. It's the. It's that emotion of deep satisfaction, knowing. That Kathy and I have accomplished something together for the last 20 years. And I look forward to 20 more together, or 40, however many the Lord gives us. I love her. I really love her. And I value her. Now, I also work over my emotional self. And one of the ways I do that is I refuse to dwell on the negative, And instead I place the positive things there that help me feel more positive and connected to her. But that's still, you know, when you got to make the hard call and you're feeling like, I, just, I don't want to forgive or I don't want to be loving or I want to be selfish. Then it comes down to the Holy Spirit in my life. Now, a Christian is very similar. They go through periods in their life where they're really hot for God, they're really cool for God, they're lukewarm for God, they're, in, you know, in that range. And then I've known Christians and they showed fruit that was genuine fruit and then they go dormant for years. Why? Because they disobey God. Now, there could be a lot of reasons. It could be something happened to them, they internalized it, instead of instead of in their mind, dealing with it in a correct way, forgiving, they got hurt, they got bitter, they gave in to the bitterness, they gave in to the resentment, and it's destroying their life. Often I've known Christians who have simply gotten discouraged. Personally, <clears throat> my father, I don't, my father sin is my father's sin he got himself where he is today but my father also as a young man father of four same age i was when i had four was not surrounded by this kind of body i personally think and my mother and i have talked of this at length <clears throat> if i can just share all this with you you are so blessed to have this kind of body of christians you see i wanted to be a pastor and i did not have a, a college degree my father didn't either, but when he wanted to be, he was told he couldn't because he wasn't good enough. My father was married when my father was 17, but it was before he came to Christ. He wanted to be a pastor, but he was told he couldn't because he was previously divorced. We don't believe it ever again that's a correct interpretation of the Bible at all. When the Bible says he must be the husband of but one wife, it means he's a one-woman kind of man. He's not a womanizer. And divorce is often way before you were even a Christian. That doesn't relate to your life now. Those were very crushing, emotional things to my father. Now, he shouldn't have gotten bitter, but he did. If he'd have been in this body, personally, I believe my father would have been helped to make better decisions. That's what I mean. Don't ever underestimate the power of the people you hang around and the impact that a loving body and family gives to you. This is why, as I deal with people, to be really honest with you, it's not very hard for me sometimes to show a huge measure of grace because they've come from such terrible families. And I'm, I, I don't... I, as your pastor, I never want to give you excuses. But let me, just, let me just tell you right now, you are severely handicapped in life if you come from a bad family. Your family was meant to prepare you for life. When I look at where my children are today, and I'm not a perfect dad, but I can promise you, they had a much better growing up than my mom, than Kathy or I. When I now am at the Rock and they're around kids their own age, oh my gosh, the difference is like it's like night and day. Because your 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 family imprints on you so. I believe that, you know, I never want you to have the victim mentality because God's in you. But there's no question that many of you need reparented. There's no question that what the body does here now is give you the love you never had in your life and begins to help you learn to trust again and begin to realize that I can be accepted and that people really love me. But you would not believe the stories and the deep hurts that people have confided in me that have happened in their own families. And those are deep wounds. Now I believe Christ can heal them. And part of what the body of Christ does in your uh, small groups is it surrounds you with loving people and it helps you overcome those obstacles. Does that make sense? So that's why I believe it's so important. We're very tolerant. I think you know at Evergreen this is a, this is a very accepting place. I mean I'm sure their place is just as accepting or more in the world. But it's one of the most accepting places I've been and it's, it's that way deliberately. We realize that sin has affected people, that relationships have affected people. And then, of course, you know, I've always been honest with you, a lot of us have been the victim miser and not the victim. A lot of us here in this room have done very cruel things. Said, I mean, And I did very cruel things to my one, one brother in particular. I didn't physically hurt him, but I taunted him. I teased him mercilessly. And it was one of the first things I repented of when I came to Christ. And I went and asked his forgiveness. Was only brother who ever smacked me in the face? It was all because I was taunting him, and he turned around. I couldn't believe it. Smacked me in the nose. My nose started to bleed, and I, I just belittled him so much. And and you know, I don't know if he's ever been able to forgive me. And I've shed many tears over that. But but after I came to Christ, I did everything I could to make peace. I gave him my car. I gave him money. Anything I could do, to let him know I really love you, and I'm terribly sorry for the unkind things I would. Uh, he was not very athletic. And so, but I had two other brothers who were, but he was the closest in age to me. So we'd go out to play football and I'd force him to try to catch bullet passes. I'd never throw him soft. And I'd always tell him he's a baby. and I he catch like a girl. I mean, you've you got to be a man. you got to catch the ball. I'd throw the ball soft and I would taunt him. I'm not proud of that. It's pathetic. So, all of us in this room, we like to play the victim. We like the sympathy of the victim. But all of us in this room have also been the harsh taunting, teasing, hard, harsh words have come out of all of our mouths. So we've been on both sides, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? If you're human. Maybe you're not, maybe you're an angel. Um, yes, back there. I wouldn't try to answer it either. I'd, lo- I'd look at the person and go, you know, that's an that's a interesting um, hypothesis. So, um, how are you and your family? <laughs> the, the reason I say that is because the person obviously has in their own way, thinks they thoroughly have examined the scripture. And they sound to me like they're quite set in their ways. And whenever I meet a person like that, I just don't have the time to wrangle, because that's what it ended up being. But, when Jesus said, when the guy said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a couple places where it says that. Okay? One was the rich young ruler. Now, I don't know if this is the passage that you're referring to. But the rich young ruler, the Lord said, well, keep the commandments, do this, do that. And he says, all these I've done since my youth. Jesus was toying with him, but in a loving way. Because he knew what he'd say. And then he said, well, then go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he went away sorrowing because he had much riches. And then Jesus said, I tell you, it's harder for a rich man um, to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The point was, if the man really meant what he said he would have gone and sold everything. The point was he loved his money more than God. When the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself and get eternal life, if when the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and you'll get eternal life, okay, right? When it says that, that's what it means. The problem is you can't do it. If you could love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength, perfectly, and you could love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you'd have eternal life. You'd be God. You can't do it. The book of John says just the opposite. See, the book of John is one of the four Gospels. And the book of John makes it very clear that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will never perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world would be saved through Him. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Or excuse me, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life and is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, um, I, I wouldn't ring with the person if I gave them that answer and they went on and on. I just go, well, you know what? Here is what I always do, when I really want to get people. And I, I just say, well, you know, you know, the good thing about your belief system is one day you'll have a chance, one on one, eyeball to eyeball, with God, and I guess then we'll see if your answer is right. I I do that, and I do it totally serious. And then they get a. Sometimes now, sometimes guys, girls will take it. They'll get a little more frightened. Some guys, especially the arrogant guys, get ah, you know. And then I'll add another question. I'll ask, well, you know, maybe another way to ask it is, are you really willing to pay with your life if you're wrong? Because I am. Because I know I'm right. I'm ready to die. So all I can say is your beliefs are great you better be ready to die for them. Because if you're wrong you will. Except you won't be in a state of death death you'll be in a state of living death. And that's real important to understand. Hell is living death. Not dead death. You're alive and dying every day and every moment and you know it and you can't get out of it forever. So, those are some of the things I try to say. Well, hey, we're out of time. It's 9 o'clock. Thanks for your questions. Very good questions. I want to do this from time to time because I know you've got them and we can never get to them, so I appreciate your honest questions. Let's uh, pray and thank the Lord for our evening. Father, we want to thank you tonight that you saved us and you saved us by your grace and you saved us because of your mercy. Not by, as Titus says, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to your mercy, you saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you live in us. We know our flesh thinks and does and says things that that are probably make you cringe. And we want to thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us, and that you love us without any strings attached. Help us, Lord, to go and passionately love you and give you our life and Help each person here to remember, Lord, that even a cup of cold water, even a a meal given, a small little shoebox of toys, a backpack given to a needy child will be rewarded in heaven by God. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. You guys have a great weekend.